say the game is getting old. Monday morning and your coffee's cold. Life is not what you want it to be. You need another. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new direction. My name is Jay Izzo, and friends. Wow, we do we have an amazing show today. I am telling you what, folks, let me tell you something. You know, I know you business owners out there and some of you people who are in leadership, you know, it's kind of like rule with the iron hand. Let's rule, you know, let's, let's, you know, we got to come up with another incentive. How do we motivate our employees? What do we need to do? Listen, I have got a great book and a great author. His name is Gary Heal. And you know what? The book's called Choose Love, Not Fear. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you dare turn off. Let me let me speak a little bit more. Let me tell you something. This book, I'm, I'm just telling you, this book, Choose Love, Not Fear, is a leadership book that you have got to pay attention to. Here's why. Listen to the secondary title, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. Let me ask you something, leaders out there. Do you really want to unleash human potential with your people? Yes or no? It's a simple question. Oh, wait. Of course you do. We all want to unleash that human potential. But you know what? We've been doing it wrong. We keep doing the same thing over and over again. Einstein said it best. If you do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, that's insanity. Stop the insanity. We're choosing love, not fear. Gary Heal's with us. Oh my gosh. Great book. Simply uh, awesome. He's going to be joining us in just a few minutes, but let's do what we do every week, right? I want to talk to you about your training, right? There are four parts to us as a, as a human being, all right? Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, all right? And, you know, right now we're in the midst of this pandemic thing and, and, you know, I tell you because after, you know, interviewing all these people from the special forces, you know, Delta Force and, and you know, people from the Navy SEALs and, and all and the special operations forces, Green Berets, you know, the one thing they all said in common is, you know what, when things get tough, when you're exhausted, when you're under immense pressure, at the end of the day, you know what, you're only as good as your training. And so I'm going to ask you how your training is going, right? Because the more you train in these four areas, the better you're going to be to withstand the pressures, the better you're going to be to withstand the, the, the things that are getting thrown at you based on your training. So let's talk about your physical training. On a scale of one to 10, one is miserable, 10 is outstanding. How is your physical training going? And what I mean by that is how are, not just how are you physically like, you know, doing, you know, working out, but you know, how about, you know, how you're eating? You know, how about drinking enough water, getting enough sleep, right? Those things. How are you doing in your physical training, right? In that scale of one to 10, all right? And what can you do to change that number? Whatever that number is, it doesn't matter what the number is. You know, if, if the number's a three, fine. What can you do to get to a four, right? We're not trying to get from a low number to 10, right? We're just trying to get to the next number. And it, and it may not be the whole number. You know, if you're a four, then just get to a 4.5, what can you change right now in your physical routine and your training that could get you to that next number, all right? So that's your first number. That's your physical number, right? Second number, the mental number, right? Mental training. What do you mean mental training? Well, mental training is just like physical training, only we're, we're, we're mentally training our mind, right? And so often we get so passive about our learning, right? We just let people throw things at us. 
rather than taking the responsibility to learn. Like reading a book like this is mental training, right? Reading a book, you know, engaging in something that's occupying our mind, you know, something that's helping us grow mentally, something that's challenging us mentally, something that's helping us, you know, be better at our at our career, something that's better, you know, helping us to be better in our lives, maybe helping us to be better in our marriage or our relationships. What are you actively doing to train your brain? Right? It could be it could be something like even learning a foreign language or it, it could be taking up an instrument, something that you're doing to help improve yourself. Being active. How's your training on a scale of 1 to 10? And and then the same question, what can you do to change it right now? All right? So you got two numbers, right? Physical, mental, and the emotional number now, right? Well, what do you mean by emotional training? You know what emotional training is? Let me tell you what emotional training is. Anybody ever cut you off in traffic? What's your first response? That's a training session. That's a training session. When somebody when somebody verbally comes at you, are you defensive? That's training. Can you change your response? You have a choice. Can you change it? Right? How about how about training yourself to identify the emotions of other people? Being more empathetic. Right? Can can you can can you increase your emotional vocabulary? Right? That's training emotionally. So on a scale of one to ten, how do you think you're doing on your training? Right? And then the question, what can you do right now to change it? Right? And then finally the fourth area, the spiritual area. Right? And you, you say to me, oh, well, I'm not really all that spiritual. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you have any plans at all for the future? Okay? Then the second question is, if you do, and I'm sure that you do, and I don't care if it's tomorrow or two days from now or a month from now, do you believe that you're going to be able to do them? Yes or no? Well, if the answer is yes, then you have faith. And faith is spiritual. It really is. Right, a lot of times, and listen, you know, it's also another part of it is, you know, what brings you back to center? What brings you back to a sense of peace? What brings you back to that place where you can feel, regardless of what everything's going around, that you, you're really in a really good place inside you, right? I mean, if you remove the physical, mental, emotional, it's all that's left. For some people, that's God. For some people, it's nature. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it could be a variety of things. The question I have for you in your training, how is that, how is that training going and how is that working out for you? Right? I mean, if it is God, we often say, you know, I, I use this analogy all the time. It's about spirit being spiritual, right? I say, you know what? Being spiritual is not going to church and thinking about fishing. Being spiritual is going fishing and thinking about God. That's spiritual, right? So on a scale of one to 10, how's that number working out for you? How's that working out for you, right? So you got four numbers, right? You could think about those as the legs of a chair. Right, if the chair is uneven, it really doesn't help our posture much, and it's very uncomfortable. And we wind up, you know, if we sit in that chair long enough, what happens is we get, well, we get bad posture and we get pain. <laughs> is what happens. So the goal is to bring that legs of the chair up evenly and not keep it too low, because you can't sit at a normal table if your chair is too low. You know, so we want to bring those up together. We want to bring those up in balance. And speaking of somebody who's going to help us learn about balance, who's going to teach us some more, his name is Gary Heal, and it is, he is an internationally claimed expert in the fields of leadership, management, and organization, and, uh, and, and especially with regard to culture. His work has helped some of the largest and most prominent companies in the world become innovative and culturally vital. He is an acclaimed author, attorney, corporate 
act director, television commentator, and athletic coach, Gary brings a range of diverse perspectives to his work on leadership, management, and innovation. He's co-authored numerous best-selling books, including One Size Fits One, Maslow on Management, uh, and uh, see Douglas McGregor and M- Douglas McGregor visited, and he has served on a variety of public, private, and nonprofit boards. He's currently chairman of the board for Celtech Metals. In 1992, Gary co-founded the Center for Innovative Leadership, an organization that helps leaders create more innovative and sustainable organizations. He also has co-founded the and pioneered Leadership Lessons from the Fast Lane, which is a podcast uh, that I highly suggest that you check out, and has served on the board of examiners for the Malcolm Baldwin. National Quality Award. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show Gary Hill. Gary, welcome to A New Direction. Thanks, Jay. Glad to be here. It's great. So, Gary, got to tell you, I love this book. And this book is absolutely, uh, it's, it's a game changer. I say that a lot. I hate using that word because it's so cliche. But the truth of the matter is, it really is a game changer. And I say that because Dabo Sweeney, who is one of the most, um, successful college football coaches in in America for the last several years um, has had, was actually did the forward for this book and I read the forward and you know he's he's saying high praises for it but I remember when Dabo literally when they interviewed him and said you know you know why are you you know why did you win and he said you know what this team is about love you know we, we love each other right and I remember when you know the article came out, I think it was in the Tampa Bay uh, Trib or whatever it was, you know, and you wrote about it too, that they said, hey, whoa, whoa, Dabo, Dabo, calm down, come back off from the love thing, right? And, but the truth of the matter is, um, you know, it, it's a, it's something he sincerely believes in. And I know it's something you sincerely believe in. And in your, duct, in your introduction, right away you say, what does love have to do with it? So let me ask you the question. Gary, what does love have to do with it? Well, you know, I didn't start out to write a book called Choose Love. Um, Actually, Dabo was instrumental in Ryan and I picking the title because I was in the middle of almost an eight-year research project. We were interviewing leaders to find out why most leaders talk a better game of leadership than they play. Everybody talks about being empathetic and kind and people-focused, and most cultures just aren't that way. So we're trying to figure out why, and some of the things we found out we knew. But one of the things that surprised us is when we interviewed this small number of great teams, you could feel the difference in the relationships among people on the team. These exemplary teams treated each other differently. And now I'd had a mentor a long time ago, uh, when Lincoln was president, it seems like I'm that old. He told me that <laughs> he, told, he told me once that a guy named Jan Carlson ran SAS Airlines, and he told me that the first the first decision every leader makes, implicitly or explicitly, the leader makes a decision: either choose love or choose fear. You choose to lead from love, or you choose to lead from fear. And I thought I understood it when he told me that more than 25 years ago. And I didn't really fully understand it. And it took it took literally this project and Dabo Sweeney to teach me. Mm. And it wasn't just his comment to Sam Ponder that day after winning the national championship. Literally watching him at practice, getting to know him and watching him lead. And you just begin to feel in their presence. And so I started to see it with, with Dabo. And then 
a guy named Alan Mulally was telling me as I walked around uh, uh, with him around a golf course, and he turned Ford around, and he used to be the president of commercial airlines for Boeing before that. And he would say, you got to love them up before you coach them up, Gare. And then I met a guy at De La Salle High School in Concord, California, named Bob Lassiter, who hadn't lost a football game in 12 years. And he would say, Gare, it's not about the X's and O's. It's, it's all about the love. And I'd be going like, well, can I stop using this word love? Mm. And then I met a wrestling coach that hadn't lost a wrestling match in a few years. And he was writing love letters to his wrestlers, mm. wrestlers after the year. And he started to do it. So you start to look at the research. And Jay, you know this as a psychologist as well as anyone. Fear makes you stupid. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. Fear makes you dumber. It narrows what you see. It limits what you see and limits what you see as possible. And if your choice is to lead from positive emotion, call it love, right. or to lead from fear, we wouldn't say that an athlete would be better when he plays scared or she plays scared. Right. Nor should we say that a leader should be better when they create an atmosphere where everybody's in fear. And we use fear, albeit unintentionally, but we use fear to control a lot. We do use fear to control a lot. We, you know, we're still stuck uh, in, in over the decades, you know, and maybe even centuries, right? We, we still use uh, techniques, if you will, that are pretty archaic, that we, we think we work because... They do work in the sense they give us, right, uh, at least a short period of time, some control. And that short period of time of control using rewards and punishments have a tendency to make us believe that they work, you know, because we, we you know, we, we, we get reinforced, <laughs> if you will, because we think that they're working, right, even if they're not. But what's interesting is you point out in the, that there was a Gallup study done that found right. out that 82% of leaders stink at leading in reality. And that the, the truth of the matter is only 18% demonstrate a high level of leadership competency. And then you point out another study by McKinsey and Company of more than 52,000 managers and employees found that 77% of managers responded that they believe they inspire action. And that's just not true. Where's the disconnect? I think the disconnect is that we we, you know, we make a par on a golf hole and we think we're a great golfer. If it works, <laughs> it should. You know, there's the old saying in Silicon Valley where I grew up that there's a lot of people that were born on third base and thought they hit a triple. <laughs> I, um, you know, you, you know if, if you're comparing yourself to everybody else, if you have so many bad leaders, which there are many bad leaders we don't want to talk about, and then you compare yourself, you know, you're no worse, you're no better. I think, we live in a society that accepts that only 30% of the people are highly engaged in their work. Mm. Um, Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford wrote a book called Leadership BS in which he basically says that most cultures are not led by humble people or and that we use fear and, and that's the way it is. I, I think most of what we've inherited from a society before us is about the manipulation of rewards and punishments. Come on. I mean, I, I was as the head of a public comp committee or two in my day, I had a line of consultants outside that kept telling me all the time, if I would only bribe my CEO differently, the company would be better. You know, as if, he, as if in this case, it was a guy at Jimboree named Matt McCauley, who was brilliant. He grew, he grew profits 500% organically in four years. And I got a comp consultant saying, but Garrett, if you just bribe him a little differently. Mm. I called Matt in one day and he's going like, 
like I'm not working hard already. And it's when you ask people, how do you motivate people? Uh, they don't give you the Douglas McGregor answer. If you don't right. motivate people, you just create a great environment because we're more in the, I would say we're more in the opportunity business than the manipulation business if we're good leaders. But so much of what we think is, quote unquote, how we get people to act using fear in terms of manipulation to try to get a result. And it's, you know, it's just, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And But it's so much a part of the ethos that it's hard to convince people of that at times, Jay. You you you, see, you must see that in your work too. I do. I, you know what? I do because I, I, I often see that we're still trying to use rewards as a way to try to get a, a, a specific behavior. But the problem is, is that you may get that spe- specific behavior for a moment, but then what happens is that behavior over the course of time starts to decrease again. Well, it does. I mean, you know, when we wrote this book, Jay, you're going to get a kick out of this. So we were talking offline before we got on that my co-author in this, Ryan, he, he and I had an argument. The only argument we had in writing the book was in the chapter on motivation. He wanted to start it off with the silliest example I've ever heard of. You know, he wanted to talk about the age-old problem of parents trying to get kids to eat broccoli. <laughs> yeah, I and that. I was like, that's the dumbest thing ever. And turns out, as usual, he's smarter than I am, and he was right <laughs> and I was wrong. Because it, it is the simplest of dumb examples that we've all done with our kids. You know, eat your broccoli, get an, uh, get an ice cream sundae, or whatever right. we promise kids you can go play, or whatever it would be. But it manipulating people, expecting them to be more engaged in their work is like expecting a threat or a promise of a reward for a kid eating broccoli to getting to right. like broccoli. He may shove it down his throat, but he's not going to like it. In fact, right. the research over 80 years is pretty clear. The more I manipulate you to do something, the less interested you become in the underlying activity. But it is those wives' tales that I think perpetuate some of the problems we have. Uh, by the way, we're talking with uh, Gary Hill. He's the uh, co-author of this book, Choose Love, Not Fear, uh, outstanding book, available Amazon bookstores near you. It's absolutely, It's by the way, I know that people are going to go, wow, that looks like it's a thick book, man. It reads so fast. I'm just telling you, I read this thing so quickly. It's it's a great read. It, it really does read quickly, and you're going to love every piece of information. It's going to challenge you. I'm just going to tell you right now that this book is going to challenge you. It's going to challenge your thinking, right? you got to be open to that. Gary and Gary and Ryan talk about that as well as that you got to be open. You know, if you want to be a great leader, you got to be open to having your, you know, your thought processes, your sometimes archaic thought process challenged. And uh, it's a great read. You're gonna really, really enjoy it. I, I'm, I'm, and by the way, I want to, I want to. You, you did this. I didn't want to go here, but I thought, well, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go there, let's go there, because you know what? Here's the question. You, you you started it, Gary. Now now we're going to go with it. <laughs> All right. So the question is, we are in some sort of motivational insanity. You talk about this in Chapter 7, Seek Commitment, Not Compliance. Mm-hmm. And you we have this – it's the question I get as a coach and as a coach and consultant, the same question you get you know, from every leader that I have ever worked with. And so I'm just going to play the role. Let me play the role. Gary, I got to tell you, my big question is for you because you're you're a great consultant, and how do we motivate people? Yeah, and and, and 
it's it's the it is the age old question, isn't it, Jay? We've oh, I get it that. all the time, man. And we're not the first one. So <laughs> my, my answer is the answer that Warren Bennis, uh, one of my mentors, gave me when he worked for Maslow and McGregor. Abe Maslow, the, the hierarchy needs, and Doug McGregor were all a little McGregorian that do this. And his answer at MIT in the late 1950s is the same, and I think it's brilliant. He says, we don't motivate people. And thinking that leaders motivate people is the problem, not the solution. Right. You don't have the power to motivate people. If you mean get a movement of bribe them to go from A to B, you might be able to get their movement. But if you want my discretionary effort, you can't do that to me. He said the most you can do is create environment that is so compelling people can't wait to sign up so in that way mcgregor was saying and i believe him to be right 60 years ago is that we're in the opportunity business the most we do as leaders is we create a compelling opportunity and we say to people would you like to play in this pool would you like this opportunity i'll give you an opportunity where we can win the game where we can make some money where you can grow as a person where you can learn where you can become more educated and if you come play on our team, you can get all those things. That's the opportunity. And if the opportunity is compelling, people will choose to come play on your team. And I think it's the same with schools. I see teachers like you do, Jay, as leaders. And, you know, there's a lot of bored students. And it's not just the student's fault. If the teacher's class is boring as hell and is not an opportunity to learn, then, you know, who can blame the student for being a little turned off? We create opportunities and environments that give people a chance to reach closer to their potential. And if we don't give them the opportunity that's worthy of their discretionary effort in a world that's got so many demands on our time, why would they sign up? Mm. So really, I think we're all motivated. There are no unmotivated people. There are unmotivated workers, but no unmotivated people. Yeah. And, and people will become motivated. That is, they will choose to take responsibility for creating a different future if the opportunity is is good enough. His name's Gary Heal. His uh, book, uh, co-authored with his son Ryan, Dr. Ryan Heal, I'm sorry, uh, Choose Love, Not Fear, uh, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potentials, Potential. And you know what? You're listening to, to him here on A New Direction. Hey, everyone, listen, you know, I talk about, you know, that we have these great sponsors at A New Direction. And I really mean that because I, I, I'm not... I, I don't just get these sponsors to get these sponsors. I will not get a sponsor if I don't believe in what they do. Well, let me tell you who I really believe in, and it's Epic Physical Therapy. I I have been there. They are my physical therapist. I, I, I love them. I honestly do. They work with professional athletes, and then they work with people who try to be an athlete like me, and people who aren't even athletes who are injured or or you know having surgery and they're they're dealing with everyday aches and pains, right? Or maybe that you're just having some difficulty performing the activities of daily life. They work with them all, right? They here's the deal. They they are they are so elite that the Epic Physical Therapy team will provide you with a customized treatment plan tailored to your individual needs. Right. And because they work with elite professionals, they really do understand the need to treat the entire body as a functional whole, not just your symptoms or your injury. So when you're ready for epic relief, epic recovery and epic results, you don't look any further. Start with epic physical therapy. That's epicpt.com. That's E-P-I-C-P-T.com. And Linda Craft and Team Realtors, for 30 years, they've been helping people around the world with their real estate home needs, right? And and by the way, 
they're still going strong. They're still at the top of their game. Why? How do you stay at the top of your game for 30 years, right? Going on 31. How do you do that? Well, I'll tell you how. You create relationships and you make sure that those relationships are authentic and that they're real and that you care about the people that you serve. And not only do you care about the people that you serve, you get to know those people. And not only do you get to know those people, you get to understand that that home was a place of many, many memories and that they understand that those memories are so important because we never remember how much we paid for the house, but we will remember every memory that we ever had living in it. And they understand that. And that's why their clients call them the legends of customer service because their customer service is that legendary because of their relationships. So when you want someone who's going to take an interest in your home and, and has that interest the same as yours, look no further than the relationship realtor, the one that believes in your memories. That's Linda Craft and Team Realtors. And you can learn more by going to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T.com. And we're back here on A New Direction with Gary Hill and his book uh, he co-authored with his son called Choose Love, Not Fear. It's an absolutely outstanding book. And we're right in the middle of motivation. And and I, I want to just make sure that I repeat something uh, here that you said because I, I want to make sure that people heard heard this. And and it really was it really was something that you wrote about Douglas McGregor said. It, it is. It's been decades ago, 50 years. We don't motivate people. We can't motivate them. I think people got to, I think people got to wrap their mind around that we can't motivate them. We don't have the power to motivate them, right? And and we have to make a distinction. And you you did make this distinction before we went on break. You made this distinction, and and it is hold it here. There's a different. We're not talking about work. We're talking about people. People are motivated themselves. Right? I mean, that's really the big, they're motivated themselves. They may not be motivated at work, but they are motivated to do something. Right? Well, absolutely. I mean, the most mo- most unmotivated person at work at four o'clock becomes sometimes an insanely good little league coach or scout mm-hmm. leader or building homes for the homeless. People go through life and they find meaning in different things. And I think it's the leader's job to provide an opportunity for them mm-hmm. to find meaning at work that's worthy of their sacrifice. You know, this this leads this leads to, you know, you talk about the environment. Because the one thing, you know, you and I both run into as coaches and consultants, one of the things that we run into is that we we look we'll hear our leaders that we coach say something about, you know, I want my I just want my team committed. <laughs> right? I just want my team committed. I want them committed to the mission, right? But that's part of our problem, isn't it? Isn't that we don't have a compelling mission? We don't have a compelling cause that people want to gravitate to? I mean, that's that's real important here, especially in terms of you know choosing love over fear. I I couldn't agree more, Jay. You know this better than anyone. I mean, um, and the number of times that you and I have sat in a room and stuff, somebody said, "Well, the reason we exist is shareholder value." <laughs> And then you watch you watch everybody in the room's eyes glaze over and go, oh, yeah, man, I'm going to turn my life upside down and not spend time with my family so he can make five more bucks or this company. Can. It's right. not about that. Every, look, let's be real. Every company, profit-oriented company, needs to make money to survive, although they'd be, they'd be wasting assets. That's how they keep score. But in the absence of something bigger than money to sacrifice for, then, then there's no real reason for people to sacrifice. And I learned the hard way. I went into a, a company a while ago, 
and I, I was asked by the CEO, and I went in and I, I asked leaders, I said, tell me where you want, what's your, where do you want the team to be different from where it is now, 18 months from now? And there were 65 directors that were above at this company, and I asked each one of them, tell me what's your vision, what's your sense of purpose, where are you going to be in 18 months that's so different from where it is now that I should sacrifice to help get there? And exactly zero of those 65 leaders could articulate even where that was 18 months from now, more or less be compelling, literally zero. So I started doing that over time, and I've been surprised at how few people can articulate a sense of purpose or a vision of the future that's different from where they are now. The default position is 18 months from now, we're going to be like we are, where we are now, only 15% better. And can you imagine? saying, follow me, I, come on, follow me. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna do something really cool. We're gonna be just like we are now, but only 10% better. <laughs> and having everybody lining up and you're going, why aren't you committed? Right. And, and look, when you say follow me, people always ask the same two questions. They don't ask, what's your leadership style? They don't do right. that. They ask, where are we going and why are we going there? And if you can't answer those two questions in a compelling way, why would they follow you? You know? Right, no. Hey, where are you going? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, surprisingly, a lot of leaders have not really thought really about where they're going. They, they're so bogged down in the day-to-day minutia of stuff. They really, they, they really cannot focus on what they're where they're really headed because they're just trying to survive the day. And I think that's really well said, Jack. That's that's extremely well said. And, and they talk about they want a culture of innovation and they want to, and they, it's not imaginative. They haven't thought about anything different from where they are because their goals, I mean, that's the, the craziness when people say you should set smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, <laughs> and part of that's pretty smart, no pun intended, but the part that's not is the attainable part because everybody wants to set goals that are attainable in the system they work in today. So what we end up with is a goal, which is 15% better, 20% better, 10% better than they are today. So my horizon is someplace that's just like I am today, only 10% better, and we turn around to people. Why aren't you turning your life upside down to be 10% better than you are today? I mean, it would be like having an epitaph when you die that says, here lies Gary Heil. He was 10% better than he was yesterday. It's just not compelling, right? Right. It's like it, it, it's it kind of it sort of precipitates mediocrity in a way. But I think we don't have a cause. We don't even have clarity of where we want to go. And right. nobody wants to face that because no. almost every leader I talk to says, yeah, we, we know where we're going. Right. And I would say, is it compelling? And it says, sure. And then you ask the team and they go, not so much. Right. By the way, I want to apologize to you. I've been saying Gary Heal, it's Gary Heil, and I totally apologize for that. I, I need to take responsibility because I believe it takes. So please forgive me for uh, mispronouncing your last name. I totally apologize. Oh, for listen, um, I misprepared. Oh, no problem. Well, l- listen, my name is spelled I-Z-S-O, and you can't imagine <clears throat> the mail I get <clears throat> and the, how people <laughs> pronounce it. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but I do apologize for that. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, remember it's Gary and Ryan Heil, right? Do not pay attention to the first thing I said. So you, in this, you talk about an example in here, developing shared, I am the team developing a shared commitment. 
can you talk about I am Jimboree for a while here and and what what they what they did and what you learned about I am Jimboree? Yeah, I thought I am Jimboree was Jimboree um, was one of the most interesting companies on the face of the earth when I was involved in them. They let me be involved in that with them until they get, we, we got bought by Bain Capital and they killed it within a few years. But Jimboree was a kids clothing store that. Um, I had met the CEO, a, a brilliant woman named Lisa Harper, who actually lives by you now, Jay, and runs uh, Belk. But she was she was the CEO of Jimboree, and she was a clothes designer, um, an artist by background, but she had designed the original clothes for Jimboree when it went public. And Jimboree had come on tough times, and they went to Lisa, and they asked her to do the turnaround. Um, a guy named Stuart Muldaw went, found Lisa, who's brilliant. And said, would you do the turnaround? And she never wanted to be the CEO, but she agreed if she could pick her team. And she picked a team of 20-some-year-old people who didn't have much experience, which made the board a little crazy. But she got to pick her team, and she made them all stand up and say these words, I am Jimboree. It looked, to me, cult-like. It's like grown people going, I am Jimboree. You know, I'm going, whoa, this is a little weird. And I said, why, why I am, Lisa? And Lisa said, Gary... It's fundamentally different to say I am the company versus I work for the company. And I need people who are more, I am the company because this turnaround is not going to be easy. Mm. And I said, yeah, I don't quite get it, but okay. <laughs> but she had this thing like I am Jimboree. And so a couple years later, they asked me to be on their board of directors, which I was forever grateful for. It was one of the great experiences of my life with that team. It was great. And I went to my first meeting of mall store managers and you know Jimboree had incredible loyalty with its with its people and i walked up to this meeting and i said to this woman how long you work for Jimboree?" and she's like i don't work for Jimboree." and i go oh no don't do that <laughs> don't do that don't do that and she goes i don't work for Jimboree. i am Jimboree." i'm going you are not Jimboree. i've seen Jimboree. it's a store it's not a person <laughs> Well, and she goes, you don't get it. And I said, yes, I've been told that before. And um, so every year I would go back and once in a while I'd make the mistake and go, how long do you work for Jimboree? And they, I don't work for Jimboree. And this I am Jimboree thing, I began to think about it. And when a company gets such loyalty right. from the people on the team that they, it's not like they really think they're the store or it's their whole life. That's not the point. The point is they so identify with the values and the cause. At Jimboree, we washed the clothes 400 times to make sure they still could be passed down generations before they passed our test for being the right fabric. Right. This was serious stuff to people. It, and the loyalty they got from the employees and from the customers is why, why uh, Bain was willing to pay them a fortune for the company to take it back private. But I'll, I'll tell you, it was... It was interesting, and I used to think it was still silly until one day, I, I must tell you, and I didn't put this in the book, I, I, I went in and I was working with the management team of ESPN for a day, and I was sold them about Jim Barry, and I was like, isn't that silly? And they all started laughing, and I didn't think it was funny until somebody pulled out from under the desk a hat from the 25th anniversary of ESPN, and all it said on it was, I am 
ESPN. And then I just gave up throwing stones at IM. And I started <laughs> to believe that these crazies, you know, all think they are the company. But it's something different when you're good enough without prompting to start to believe that right. you identify so much with the company. It's, it's, it's why, you know, Rich Tierlink at Harley-Davidson is, is a hog, you know, the right. Harley user group, and why people tattoo their name on their body. I mean, it's, it, there are some brands that are that strong, and Jim Bury in those days was one of them. We're talking with uh, Gary Heil, um, author, co-author of the book, Choose Love, Not Fear. Wait, let me, let me. I don't want to, I'm not, let me, let me kind of talk about that a little bit. There was something that you said in the book that got to me, you know, it's actually a a progressive step, isn't it? To get to, I am this company, right? Because it's, you're not saying I want to be part of this company. You're not saying, well, I work for this company. You literally are, when you, when you state that out loud, Right, and, and, and whoever's listening, wherever you're listening around the world, right? And, and by the way, we thank you, world, for listening. Wherever you're listening around the world, wherever you work, I just want you, you're in your car and you're driving, you know, listening to the show, or maybe you're at home or you're at the office or whatever listening to the show. I want you to think about your company and I want you to say out loud, I am, and then the company name. How does that feel? To you, do you believe it? See, I, that that was what that's what struck me when you when you when you started relaying the story to me in the book, and then you just did now, right? Is that do I really believe in the company I'm working for? Because that really is what sets it apart, isn't it? That when I can that I'm really truly when I'm really truly go, you know what? I am this company. You know, you, you see it, Jay, and it's so uncommon these days. We've gone out of our way as companies to not have people do that. Right. We've gone out of way to say, we don't promise you continued employment. We don't promise you anything except you'll be better off if you've worked here. We can't promise you this. It's it's. We go out of our way to tell people, you know, that we don't promise that kind of thing. And even when you take a small company and they become a larger company, you know, well, we can't be a family anymore. And so many small businesses feel that way because they have a family feeling to them. And many of your audience who run family businesses probably identify with it terrifically because, you know, we are a family. We treat each other like a family. We care for each other. We're there for each other. And then they get bigger and something happens along the way as they think they get more professional and it, and it, and, and it doesn't happen. But when you see it, it's unmistakable. You, you see that right. when you go down and you see Davos, we Clemson. It right. is like that. If you were to go in the old days of Disney, when right. you'd go watch a Disney, as I was lucky enough to do for years, when you'd go watch a perfect attendance party at Disney – and you realize there are people with 32 years perfect attendance, not just 32 years longevity, 32 years perfect attendance and the lavish celebrations. Right. Or, you know, and you would see the pride in the company in a way. At Jimboree, they had something called Jimboree Idol, <laughs> where the three top people in the company would be the American Idol judges. And the, and the company was headquartered in San Francisco, and you'd have all this talent. They would come and some of them were terrible, like get them off the stage and some really talented people, but they would laugh and they would cry and they would basically love each other Mm. for a night. 
in a way that was so close that you felt like you were part of something that was more than a company. Right. You, you know, I want to address something that you, you said. I, I, I've given this a lot of thought after reading your book about, you know, when companies start to get so big, you know, they have a tendency to lose that family feel. But I go back to playing, I, I played a little college football, and I go back to playing college football. And you know what kept the family feel, right, is that what happened is, as the team gets bigger, and there's hundreds of student athletes on these teams, what's interesting is we had position coaches, and we had our own little small group, and there was a love that was built. I was a defensive lineman, and there was this love for each other as defensive linemen. There was, it, the, the group got a little bit bigger, and there was this love for the whole defensive side of the ball. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I think what happens and I'm just being inspired by what you've written and what you've said. And so I'm thinking out loud here. But I think sometimes what happens is, is that we we don't think about, you know, cr- keeping that family field feel in the smaller groups that we do. It, it gets lost somehow. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I before before we started to title this book and before we did the research, I might have given a different answer. But, you know, the basic human emotion that's the building block of everything positive is love. And Arthur Brooks wrote a great book called Love Your Enemies, you know, and I, I think when you start to see that when you build a community or an organization or a classroom, or a team, or a defensive line, based on how much we care about each other that is really based in caring deeply, whatever you call that. I mean, Thomas Aquinas' definition of love was that I meant good for others around me, Mm. right? Right. And when you build it based on that and not fear, then you begin to form much like a family does based on love, you begin to form connections and relationships that are deeper than transactional. So much of business these days, so much of being in the classroom in the high school these days, or wherever we're talking about it, even football teams at times, it's transactional. It's about me. Right. And kids are taught that at a pretty young age. It's my SAT scores. It's my grades. It's my starting in the varsity lineup. It's my this. And... Isn't it true that even when you were on a defensive line like that, that it was about we, it was about us, it was about caring for each other, it was about having each other's backs. And for some reason, there's just far too little of that. And when you build cultures, shared values and assumptions based in fear, how do you have relationships that are deep, trusting, and vulnerable if what you feel all the time is fear, it just doesn't make any sense. And that's why it doesn't make sense to me to perpetuate many of these quote unquote management practices that are far, far too fear based. His name's Gary Heil. The book is titled Choose Love, Not Fear. He's co-author with his son, Dr. Ryan Heil. And you know what? We're going to be right back right after this. Hey, everybody, listen, Epic Physical Therapy, you hear me talk about them, you know that they're my physical therapist, but let me tell you something else. They offer the most advanced, top-of-the-line equipment, including the Alter-G anti-gravity treadmill. Yeah, so it takes all the pressure off your joints so that you could still actually run. Listen, I'm not a runner, but... 
I, I got to tell you, everybody that I know who does it says, man, you can't believe it. It's like, for the, it's been like, you know, since I've been a kid that I can run without feeling all this pressure on my knees and on my hips and everything. That's what the anti-gravity treadmill is. They also have things like the Normatec compression sleeves, which are really fantastic to keep your joints together. And, you know, you feel like, oh my gosh, I've, I've, I've actually got ligaments now. And then there's the game ready. You know, that's my favorite, right? It's, it's ice cold water and compression that takes all the swelling out of your body. Absolutely fantastic, right? So look, not only do they have all this great cutting edge equipment, they are also trained and certified in the most comprehensive cutting edge treatments available, you know, like blood restriction uh, therapy, uh, blood flow restriction therapy, you know, sometimes called BFR, the dry needling, right? Which this looks a little like acupuncture, but it's actually just dry needling. It takes, it's, it's amazing what it does for pain. And then the cupping, right? The, the little circles that you see on the swimmer's back, they're manipulating the muscle through the skin. Fantastic. I've had it done. It works. I'm just telling you. Look, when you're ready for epic relief, epic recovery, and epic results, don't look any further. Just go to Epic Physical Therapy. That's ep- epicpt.com. That's E P I C pt.com and of course our longtime sponsor linda craft and team realtors and we are really grateful to her and to her team for sponsoring a new direction but look here's the deal right they're located in raleigh but they help people all over the world and the reason that they're able to help people all over the world is that for 30 years that linda has developed relationships with the best professionals in the world she doesn't belong to a national company, so she doesn't have any loyalty to this company or that company. No, she has made and created relationships for 30 years with the best experts in your area. Absolutely the best. And because of that, she's able to refer you to the best expert wherever you live because because she doesn't have any loyalty to any other company. She's an independent, right? And, and, and you know what? That makes a difference because that means that you're not going to get compromised. You're going to get the best expert. So when you're ready to sell your home or buy your home, start, start with the relationship realtor, start with the memory maker, start with the one that her clients say that her customer service is legendary. Start with Linda Craft and Team Realtors. You can learn more by going to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T.com. And we're back here on A New Direction with uh, Gary Heil and uh, his book that he's co-authored with his son, Dr. Ryan Heil, Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. Uh, fabulous read, and uh, we, we it's, it's, it's really just a great read. And we're having, I hope, we're, I hope he's having a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun doing this with you. Are you having a good time here, Gary? It's awesome to talk to a pro like you. Great. <laughs> Oh, Gary, you don't know me that well. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, you know, we talk about all this. One of the things that people can get kind of sucked up into in this, they go, oh, Gary, no, love, 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 love. Oh, God, got to lead with love. No, no, no. But But then you have this chapter three. I love chapter three, right? Because just, just for those people who are going... Look, you can't, in my business, you know what? You can't do that in my market. You can't do that in my business. I can hear them, right? Because they, they all say that, right? So chapter three says, get the right people on the team and get the wrong people off, right? And the fact of the matter is, you know what? You do really need to have the right players, don't you? Uh, yeah, you can't do this without the right players. And, you know, that. There's two parts to that, Jay, as you know. Um, one part to that is, is getting the right players on and off and knowing what kind of players you need and not trying to save every player that's the wrong player forever. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you let a person go because they were the wrong player 
and then sit around two weeks. We sure do miss old Gary. Right. No, we don't. Right, right. You know, he's gone earlier, like half the time, right? Right. It, there, there are people who shouldn't be on the team. I would be the wrong player on certain teams, and right. I think I could play pretty well on other teams. Right. But if I'm on the wrong teams and don't care, saving me is never going to be an option. I, I, yeah. I think that is true. Yeah. The other, I think the other part of that is people hear the word love and they think soft. Right. And oh my God, is that not true? <laughs> the, the, the leaders who basically made me think about love differently 25 years after Jan Carlson told me, look, you don't want to be at a Dabo Sweeney practice and make a lot of mental errors. Right. It's not like his love of you is going to tolerate mistakes that you shouldn't be making. Right. He will, in a New York second, let you know the toughest leaders I met were the ones with the most love. Right. And it's almost like how you expect more from your kids because you love them. Right. When you care deeply about somebody and wish the best for them, you demand that they give their best. Dabo's thing, he has it hanging in his practice facility. The best is the standard. Your best right. is the standard of performance on every play, practice, or game. Right. And if you don't give it, you probably won't see the field. When you were, you work for Al Mulally at Ford, he says, love them up before you coach them up. Right. You're not thinking that you could play a different game than he's playing and still hang out. Right. In fact, he, he likes to tell a story about one of the people, he had this day-long meeting one day a week where they would do these operational reviews and one of the heads of the business lines came up and, and I, he was telling me, he was saying, hey, listen, I, I don't have a half a day or a day to spend on this every week. You're going to have to, I can't, I can't come to your meetings, Alan, every, every week. And Alan's response was pretty clear, which was, yeah, I understand. You're, you're a busy guy. And, and you, I don't blame you. I love you. But it, it, it's like if you don't come to our meetings, that's fine. You just can't work on the team. Right. You could work somewhere else, I think, and be fine with that, but not here. And listen, I love you. I hope you'll come to the meetings, but if not, you just can't work here. Hmm. And Mullally's turnaround at Ford, which was unbelievable. He did it with the same management team he inherited, with the exception of one person. And the standards were fundamentally different when he showed up than before he showed up. Right. At DLSL, you... all the same thing. It's it's they set higher standards and are tougher, not in their language tougher. But they demand more from you than most coaches. That le- I'm going to skip over because that leads me right into something that I want to talk to you about because this is it's it's a word that's being thrown around today and it's chap it's from your chapter five make accountability mutual mm-hmm. because I think again you know we think about the love and we think oh gosh we're being soft and everything but accountability is a huge part but we just have to have a different view of accountability than we traditionally have so let's talk about you know, chapter five and making accountability mutual and how that may be different than what we think about it when it comes to accountability. Yeah. Accountability too often. Uh, you think of your parents or you think of your boss or you think of something like it's a management activity to hold those people accountable, right? <laughs> well, on the best teams, yeah, bosses hold you accountable and I'm dabble holds people accountable and you know, good leaders hold people accountable, but that's not what accountability really means. On the best teams, we hold each other accountable. We call it mutual accountability, but it is it is that you make a promise to the team that you will give your best, and that everybody on that team, 
holds each other accountable for doing nothing less than that. And I, and I, I, I give the one example in the book of the football practice right. I went to where two guys got in a little scuffle at practice. And I didn't say it in the book, but it was a Clemson practice now that we've talked like this. <laughs> and, and, this, and this, these two linemen, before the coach can even take off his headset, the one lineman grabs the other one and says, picks the guy, breaks up the little scuffle, and he goes, we don't act like here. Get off my field. And throws the two players off the field and says, we don't act like that here. We don't do that here. You may do that somewhere else, but you don't do it here. Two minutes later, they're back on the field. And they're hugging them and saying, knock that stuff off. We love you, but you can't act like that here. The accountability is so direct and so quick. But you see, that's so different than I was in a meeting recently with uh, uh, people that were reviewing their core values. And they weren't living their values at all. And their response was, well, yeah, I didn't live them, but nobody did. And the boss didn't hold us accountable, so I thought they didn't matter anymore. And we say we love customers, but we do this. And you know, how many times do we walk around and watch people break the rules and nobody says anything? And what we tolerate, we teach. And when we tolerate people who don't live our values, we don't have values anymore. And I saw that, as I say, in, in juxtaposed to the, the football example, with a team that uh, the co-author, Ryan, actually, my son actually played for uh, college and baseball and with a very famous coach. And I watched the game and I watched the 11 o'clock curfew and then I watched at 11.30 as all the, all the players ran out the, the door right after the bed check and nobody held each other accountable for doing anything except getting out of the room as fast as they could after midnight right. and wonder why they struggled the next day. Right. I don't think it's possible for accountability to be top-down only. No. For accountability to work on a team it has to be mutually everybody's responsible to fulfill their promise to the team to give their best and to hold others accountable for doing the same. And, and, and it, you know, this goes back. You, you will hold someone accountable on your team if you care about them. Yes. Right? I mean, because if you don't care, if you don't care, you don't care what they do. Mm -hmm. But when you care, you want them to do better, you know, as a teammate. I think that's really true, Jay, and I think you care about them and you care about the team. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I'm I'm going back years now, but I'm going back thinking about, you know, the guys that I played with, you know, and I, I cared what they did on Friday night before Saturday, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I cared about, you know, I cared about what they were doing in class, you know, because I, I wanted them to stay, I wanted them to not just be eligible, I wanted them to succeed academically. You know, and, and, you know, because I knew that this was an opportunity for them to change a lot of these guys to change their lives. Yeah. And, you know, it, you, when you see somebody doing that and, and they're and they're not doing what's best for the team, they're letting everybody down. Right. The team. But there is this glue that holds great teams together that the not so great teams, the just good teams don't have. And that is this commitment to accomplishing something extraordinary that they know that everybody needs to give their best and we need everybody's best effort. And I promise my best effort. And when I'm not giving my best effort, which is going to happen sometimes, right. then the person standing next to me is probably the person best able to tell me, come on, Gary, raise your game. This is not okay. Right. Yeah. If you wait for coaches to do it, how many, 
Jay, when you're playing football over there, about 125 people right. you know, in the program, Yeah. even with position coaches, they right. don't see everything that happens yeah. on a Friday night, a Thursday night, uh-huh. and a Wednesday night. Right. No, I get it. I, I, listen, I, you know, I let my team down my freshman year because I, you know, messed around. And so that lesson was very hard on me and, and taught me a lot a bit about how I let, how many people I let down for just messing around. Right. My, my first semester of my freshman year, I, I, I remember it clearly. I, I spoke about it, did a speech on it. And it, but the truth of the matter is I know what that's like. I, I want to jump ahead because we're running out of time. Believe it or not, we've almost been on an hour and, um, live and uh, by the way i want to thank everybody live for listening in uh castbox fm and and facebook live thank you all for jumping in and listening in and you guys have been great but i want to i want to talk about chapter six i want to talk about a specific area of chapter six entitled love learn to love different because i happen to be this person uh because you talk about embracing different can provide a competitive advantage and Sometimes, and by the way, just right here, I live in Raleigh, you know, there was some research that was done here that was actually, they, North Carolina State University, which is literally just a few miles down the road from me, there is a, there were, they, they, they created, did, did the research that there is a cause and effect link, not correlation, between diversity and innovation. And oftentimes, when we talk about diversity, we, you know, we can get locked into one part of diversity, but we're talking about diversity on a whole number of ranges here. And it, it could be age, it could be color, it could be ethnicity, it could be any any number of things that we talk about. But it can also be those people who happen to be a little different. Those those mavericks, those uh, you know, those people who are a little quirky, those people who don't like taking no for an answer, those people who um, kind of can push back. Those people are really important too, aren't they? Yeah, more important than we realize. When Chick Mihai did a lot of studies on creativity, when when you look at the people who really move the world forward, okay, they are a different bunch. And they think differently, they act differently. And here's the elephant in the room, Jay. Everybody wants to be creative. Everybody thinks that organizations need to be innovative. But the research shows that we punish, punish creativity. Mm. We punish creative expression. We punish different because our need for certainty is so great. And we have subtle ways to do it. I mean, if you look at the way we hire, we, we sort through resumes and find the 10 resumes we like, which means they look a lot like what we think we want, which is they look a lot alike. And then we bring them in three or four of them for interviews and we have five people interview them to make sure nobody has an objection. And so the gauntlet is you have to have a resume that looks like everybody else. And then you go through interviews and nobody can have an objection. So we hire somebody that looks just like, thinks just like, and acts just like we do. And then we say, we love diversity and Mm -hmm. we don't get creative thoughts and we don't get much imagination. And we wonder why we're having trouble thinking differently. Mm -hmm. The research is really clear. You have to learn to love weird a little if you want to be different. And you have to learn to tolerate weird a little. I mean, think about this. If you go to hire somebody on your team, and I think one person said it to me right, the the research shows that the, the person who's going to push you forward is hard to manage, won't take no for an answer, doesn't look like everybody else, 
pushes you to think differently and is, is not afraid to confront people and is usually involved in some conflict with others that won't question the status quo. And so when I said that to a team not too long ago, this person says, why would we hire somebody who's tough to manage and doesn't take no for an answer and keeps pushing for things that disagrees with everybody else? Because we really do value people who agree more than we value different. We agree certain over novelty. We don't like uncertainty very much. And people who are different make people uncomfortable. And we got to get over that, right? Yeah, no, we do. My friend, you know what? We've been on an hour. It's gone fast. <laughs> it has for me. It, it's gone so fast. I can't believe how fast this time has gone. I mean, we have. I, I've enjoyed this immensely. And uh, I so I want to thank you um, so much uh, for being on the show. Now, I ask my friends, because you're now a friend. You're no longer a guest um, of the show. You've been at the kitchen t- kitchen counter and eating some Italian meats and cheeses and drinking a beverage with me. Um, so now that we've done that, uh, I always I tell, tell my friends, you know, look, the show's called A New Direction because we ask people to, you know, we try to help people find a new direction in their life or their career or their business. So if Gary Heil, co-author of Choose Love, Not Fear, could offer the listeners all over the world a new direction, what would he say? I, I would say the, the, the title is right. I think if... We understood as students, as athletes, or as leaders that it isn't positive thinking that moves the world forward, it's positive emotion. Mm. And that the lesson for me that was hard for me to learn, and I missed it for 25 years, was that we become addicted to using fear to control. And it's not overt like they're scared of me. It's the manipulation of reward. It's a fear of not getting promoted. It's a fear of not being accepted. It could be a fear of being socially outcast. There are a thousand ways that we use fear unintentionally to get people to conform. And if we could find a way to put more love in our work lives and our lives in general, because if leadership's a reflection of who you are, then I think we have to look for the good in others and we have to have others' backs and realize that really, probably we were right about the golden rule. Put more positive emotion into your company and it will reap great benefits. It's the emotion that must be positive. And I think that was a lesson that I only learned when Dabo Sweeney made me look at life a little differently because he was just so overt in his strong belief that culture would be a competitive advantage and culture based on positive emotion is just common sense. His name is Gary Heil. The book is, and it's an awesome one, Choose Love, Not Fear. You know what, folks? That's the show. You know what I say every week, right? Be inspired because when you're inspired, that means that you will inspire others. Then in turn, when they're inspired, they will inspire other people and that can make this world an awesome place. I'm going to be back next week with another great show, another great guest, another great book. I promise. And as I say to you every week, ciao, everybody. To go a different way, yeah. The time has come for a new direction. your confidence and the answers don't make sense got to keep your hope alive you got to know you can survive
Find your strength. 